Welcome to Pacific Mammal Research's Marine Mammal Highlight Series. We are a 501c3 research and education nonprofit studying marine mammals in the Salish Sea off Washington State. In this series, you will learn about different marine mammals as we discuss interesting facts about each species. This is our way to geek out, share some information, and have some fun. We hope you enjoy the series and be sure to follow us on Instagram to vote for which animal we talk about next. And without further ado, Welcome to the Pac-Man Podcast. I'm Cindy. And I'm Kat. And uh, this week is a Marine Mammal Highlight. Uh, and thank you guys for voting. Uh, we had quite a few votes. And it was unlike past weeks where we've had lots of ties and very, very close. This was kind of a landslide. Um, it was between the Hector's Dolphin and the Heaviside's Dolphin. And uh, the Hector's won very convincingly. Like 70%. You guys are ready to, ready to learn about Hector's Dolphins, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's so, someone... I mean, I think people... At least I have heard more about Hector's than heavy size. So maybe mm-hmm. it's just a recognition factor. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that helps too. But either way, um, we're on to the Hector's dolphin. And I think we'll probably be doing dolphins for a while because we seem to have, uh, we've gone through our porpoises and most of our baleen whales and a lot of our pinnipeds. So um, for some reason, we've, we've left the dolphins off. So the next few. Well, there's also more dolphins. That's true. That's true. The others. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> there's that. More to choose from. Little things. Um, all right. So, um, these guys are, are super cute. They're uh, one of the most adorable, uh, dolphins, I think. Uh, and they're little, but Kat's going to talk about that. So she'll start off with our, um, what they look like and kind of where they're at, um, before I get into their diet behavior. So let's start it off. Yeah. So before we get into appearance and distribution, I do just want to clarify for those of you who are interested in marine mammals and might already know this. Um, there are technically two subspecies of Hector's dolphins that have been um, formally recognized. So this is based on both morphological differences, um, so based on like physically, physically different Physical features, mm-hmm. um, but also genetic evidence um, and reproductive isolation. So basically, that they're not interbreeding. And, so, and I have some exciting stuff about that in research later. So. Oh, cool. Okay. Um, so the subspecies that retains the common name Hector's dolphin. Um, is occurring in the waters around the South Island of New Zealand. The other subspecies is known as the Maui dolphin or Maui's dolphin, um, which occurs only in the waters off of the west coast of the North Island of New Zealand. So these are very geographically isolated dolphins in general. Um, And then they did basically discover that the Maui's dolphin is um, genetically different and isolated from the Hector's dolphin group. So I just wanted to put that out there because this is going to be one of those where we are kind of, especially with the appearance, I'm going to be talking about both subspecies, but then we're also going to be referring to them as a whole in some parts of this as well. Um, yeah. I think so most it's a little of confusing. It's, it's, yeah. Cause they're, they're not physically, they're not really that different. They're hard to tell the difference in. Right. In, which in is the why there's subspecies versus right. two distinct species, right? Yeah. It's a little bit harder to tease apart. And so like for mine, I'll have basically what I'm going to be talking about my stuff as a whole, but then there'll be a couple points where I'll be like, well, this is particularly for Maui's or Hector's, but right. for the most part, they're very simple. Yeah. <laughs> but they so are just to, just to clarify that. Um, so yeah. we are technically talking about two different subspecies here that are um, very, very similar. Yeah. So like Cindy said, they are the smallest dolphins in the world. They're only about four to five feet in length. Um, the Maui's dolphin actually does get a little bit bigger than the common Hector's dolphins. So they can get up to 143 pounds while the Hector's dolphins are only growing to about 110 pounds. So kind of your average woman's or like big 
big kids um, weights here. So they're pretty small. Um, in both subspecies, the females are larger than the males too, which is also kind of interesting. Mm. So in terms of what they look like, they are pretty short with stocky bodies. They have a very, um, very blunt face. So basically no, mm-hmm. nor minimal external beak. Um, and they have a relatively large fluke for their body size. So their tail is pretty big compared to how small their bodies are. They, they also want to, they got junk in the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, they also have a very distinctive dorsal fin, which is extremely round. So it's been called Mickey mouse ear dorsal fin style or dorsal fin shape. Cause it's very, very rounded. Um, yeah, I, I can see it, but also it, it doesn't like, if I looked at it, I didn't immediately go Mickey mouse. If you say it, then I go. Yeah, we were talking about this before we hit record. We're like, I I, I totally get it. I'm like, no, I I totally see why people would call it that. But um, it's very, it's very unique. Especially so again, if you do see these guys around New Zealand, you're going to be able to tell that it's a Hector's dolphin pretty easily. Um, They also have paddle-like pec fins as well. So their, um, their flippers are, are more paddle-like. They're all just more rounded in nature. Generally. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're kind of just, yeah, like cute little round dolphins. and their coloration is also very distinctive. So they're they're gray, black, and white, and it does change as they age. So the as an adult, the the sides of the head, the tail, the dorsal fin, and the flippers are all black. And then the throat, lower jaw, and belly are white. Uh, most of the rest of the body is gray. They do have some some very cool. Um, I would definitely, if you're not watching the mm-hmm. YouTube version, I would definitely recommend looking these guys up because they are really beautiful. Adorable. Um, yeah, they're super pretty. And they do have a thin black line that comes from from the head to just behind the blowhole. So again, when you see these guys out in the wild, you're going to be pretty sure that you're seeing a Hector's dolphin, especially if you're in and around New Zealand, you're you're going to be pretty certain that this is what you're seeing. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll note for the for the people who are watching on YouTube, um, Kat couldn't have her video on today for internet issues. So she's probably going to be a Hector's dolphin today. Um, I'm like, I'm okay with that. It's prettier than my regular face. So I, I, you're, you're welcome, internet. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> I get to be a Hector's dolphin. <laughs> also, that's perfect because we're filming this right around Halloween. So I could just say that I was a Hector's dolphin. Exactly. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have 26 to 32 pairs of small conical teeth because again, they are dolphins. So they have cone shaped teeth in both the upper and lower jaws. Um, so they have teeth in both jaws as well, just to clarify. So in terms of their distribution, like I said, they are native to New Zealand and they are typically found right around the coast. So again, the Maui dolphins are, are typically only found along the northwest coast of the North Island. Um, the common Hector's dolphins are found in the waters around the South Island and um, they, can, they have three genetically distinct regional populations around there as well of the, the Hector's dolphins. Typically, you're going to see these guys within about 20 nautical miles of the coast, and they prefer water that's less than 300 feet deep. So they are, you know, more shallow water swimmers um, and very, very coastal. And they do have relatively small home ranges as well, typically less than about 31 miles, I found on one site, mm-hmm. and high site fidelity. So they do have some longer movement patterns, but um, for the most part, they're sticking close to home and they are um, they don't really travel as far. I'm sure Cindy will get into that a little bit as well. Well, you basically said it, but yeah, you know. Okay, cool. Um, so yeah, so basically they don't really travel too far. They're pretty, pretty well conserved around the waters of the South Island or restricted to that, the Northwest waters of the North Island, um, for the Maui dolphins. Um, so yeah, that's what the Hector's dolphins look like and where they are found. So if you are in New Zealand or going to New Zealand, 
definitely keep your eyes peeled for these guys because they are adorable. And you are most likely like, unlike some of the species we've talked about, you are likely to be able to identify them when they surface because of that yeah. really, really extremely rounded dorsal fin. There's like no other dolphin that has that rounded. of a No. And especially with the markings and, you know, conjunction with that and their size, because they are super small. Yeah. So yeah, that's what these guys look like and where they live. Excellent. Um, yeah, so they, like I said, they're, uh, I just think they're one of the cutest little dolphins. And we'll actually, um, I'm sure later with the with kind of fun facts, I know you, we like to do what, their different names and stuff, and there's some, mm -hmm. some fun ones that go along with that. Um, but so these guys, and uh, I'll say now that a lot of, uh, these remind me a lot of harbor porpoises, actually, in the mm -hmm. way that they are socially, just, well, part of the way they're socially, but just a lot of their um, behavior and uh, certain aspects of their uh, ecology are very reminiscent for the one thing being close to that shore close to shore all the time right harbor mm -hmm. porpoises are similar in that way um they're very very close to, and so they are more uh susceptible to a lot of the anthropogenic you know human threats uh, which, which we'll get, get in later. we'll get into oh yeah yeah <laughs> but it's been very they're very similar in in what you know uh, the other coastal species like harbor porpoises are um have to be worried about <laughs> mm -hmm. um so for their diet, uh, as Kat says, they usually live within that the 20 nautical miles and the water's less than 328 feet. They dive very shallow, um, only dive for two or three minutes at a time. Also probably because they don't have a lot of lung capacity because <laughs> they're so small. Right. <laughs> so that yeah. will limit you. Um, they tend to like shallow sandy bottom. Um, that's uh, preferred. Um, they eat a, a, a different range of things. So they eat cephalopods, which... Um, Interestingly, mainly that squid. Um, they say cephalopods, but then everything that talks about that, it's just that they just say squid. <laughs> um, some crustaceans like crabs, um, but their main diet is small fish. So, uh, for example, the ones that I found most often cited were red cod, yellow-eyed mullet, flounder, mackerel, ahuru, ahuru uh, which is pink cod. I guess that's different than red cod. <laughs> Slight different coloration. Uh, arrow squid. Uh, Sprat, Soul, and Stargazer, which I think is a cool name, personally. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the, the most common ones. They uh, are found to, they remain close to shore um, due to, they think, in a lot of cases, due to inshore larval presence. So in spring and summer, many species oh. go in that way to spawn. Interesting. That and makes then sense. It's, yeah, handy for them. Um interestingly and these are again for the hector so there's the east coast and the west coast um sides the east coast eats a more diverse prey so eight different species on average whereas the west coast only eats about four different species on average um and i'll we'll have something to note about that in the new research as well um how that kind of ties in um but that you know that can go into conservation right one side can eat more things than the other that may be difficult if something happens to one of those prey species. Mm -hmm. um, the only thing I saw was that they, they'll flex at the surface or swim on their side during feeding, which is, um, especially swimming on their side, I think is a fairly common behavior for feeding, but they specifically mentioned those behaviors. Um, and they are seen foraging around fishing boats that use trawl nets, which I know Kat will definitely get into um, in the threats. Um, but so they're around there, but they're thought to be hunting the fish that are on the seafloor that are disturbed by the trawling gear rather than the fish that are captured in the net. 
Right. So unlike some species that we've talked about where there's direct competition between the right. fishermen and the cetacean species, in this case, it's actually, it's more of a byproduct of like, oh, well, you're disturbing these critters. Let me go grab them. Right. Um, yeah. It's like the, um, uh, the egrets and stuff that hang out around ungulates, you know, like horses and rhinos and all these other different uh, mm -hmm. herbivores that they're just like, hey, we're going to hang out while you're pulling up all the grass. All these little bugs come up and that's what we're going to go eat. Yeah. That's the only kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> so um, behaviorally, they are uh, in small groups, groups of two to four, up to 20, sometimes over 100. Um, and so that's somewhat similar, of, you know, as I said, with harbor porpoises, where we see small groups of even less than two to four, but um, they do aggregate. But in contrast to um, them, they are, um, uh, to, in contrast to harbor porpoises, these guys are, in, when they get in their larger groups, they are boisterous. I love that word. <laughs> it's just, it works really well with their cute little Hector dolphin, you know, like, oh, you're just like your cute little boisterous dolphin. Um, they're acrobatic, excitable, noisy. Um, and um, so a lot of the behaviors that you'll see are um, body contact, bubble blowing, leaping, lobtailing, spy hopping, surfing, bow riding. Um, and so they do that quite a bit, but less active than others, like spinners or dusky dolphins, which basically just fly out of the water all the time. Mm. They're very acrobatic. So they're kind of in the middle where the, they do it quite a bit, but not as much as others. Um, the uh, aggression, um, when they show aggression, that's generally tail splashing, chasing, biting, bubble blowing, and lobtailing. So lobtailing is like that cartwheel um, where they slap their flukes across the water. Um, the bubble blowing, I don't know if it's the same thing as what we see with dolphins in the Bahamas. Um, they call it a Taurus or a bubble ring. And that is very much says, I'm not happy with you right now. <laughs> um, breaching is often done when feeding, uh, and is also associated with excitement as, as also lo lobtailing is too. So apparently that's what they do when they get excited is breach or do cartwheels. Um, and they found that they do, um, they speak in in the frequency that we can hear even the their high frequency clicks are still within our audible range so um they found that high frequency clicks uh that we can hear are often linked with aerial behavior and may indicate excitement so they may be literally squealing while they're jumping mm -hmm. which i thought was super super cute <laughs> um they are actually uh, slow swimmers comparatively to other other species and they use an undulating motion and they didn't really explain much more than that. Um, but I'm guessing it's just a little bit different than how other dolphin species tend to. Yeah, interesting. You know, I guess more of a body motion versus just their flukes, perhaps. Right. Um, <clears throat> they will swim close to each other when uh, around boats. Uh, and that could be a sign of stress. But I've saw other things that said that they will readily approach boats. And there are swim with and watch programs if you go to mm -hmm. New Zealand. So not i'm not too sure exactly where they lie and it may be some individual differences right some may be fine with boats and some maybe not so much right well and again in terms of comparing not to harbor porpoise we see a similar thing in our yeah. study site where sometimes the the harbor porpoise are really reactive to boats going through the past other times they completely ignore them and go about their business yeah so it might be dependent on the type of boat too exactly and what the behavior that they're doing at the time right yeah be able to be like oh, i can ignore that or nope i can't <laughs> um their social structure uh, is not like 
uh, harbor porpoises, or at least, well, we don't really know what harbor porpoise social structure is, but likely is not. It's much more uh, similar to other dolphin species uh, in that fission fusion. So basically, they come together, they go apart, they come together, they go apart um, in groups that kind of constantly change throughout the day. And I always equate that to, you know, people you get up with your with your family, then you go to work and you have you're with different people, then maybe you go to lunch with different people, you go back to work, you go back home. So you're um, in the you have these associations that are changing throughout the day, depending on the behavior that you're doing. Um, and so but these guys, but within that, a lot of dolphin species have long term associations that, you know, um, are, are kept. But for these guys, it looks like their associations tend to last no longer than a few days. Uh, in the general general terms, <clears throat> obviously, mothers and calves are are a different story, um, but their regular associations tend to just be fleeting um, comparatively. Um, they often will form groups of either only males or only females. The mixed groups are more common for Maui dolphins. Interestingly, mm. not sure why. Um, they do form nursery groups, so those are exclusively pretty much um, moms and calves or cow calf pairs, as they are called. Uh, and these they will separate from from individuals that don't have calves. So basically, like I have a baby, sorry, can't hang out with you. I got to hang out with other mm -hmm. people who have babies, other other Hector's dolphins. Um, and then sometimes juveniles will group up together with no adults. So once they get old enough, they go off on their um, with their friends and uh, do what Hector's dolphins do as juveniles. <laughs> uh, so that companions can change often in those uh, in those different groupings. Um, so. Um, that I will say one one note about the uh, small home ranges. Um, I have the exact same stats that Cat had that high site fidelity, but there were some long term movements documented of over two hundred and fifty miles. So, as with almost any species we've ever talked about, even if they have high site fidelity, there are going to be some guys that just want to go on a walkabout and go explore the world. So. Um, that's that. I will note one thing, and this will lead up to the, the threats that talk, Kat will talk about a little bit later, is that there can be up to 31 commercial boat trips per day in Akaroa Harbor. Yeah. Um, so just keep that in mind when we talk about the things that they're, they're dealing with. Um, reproductively, their lifespan is a max of 22 years. So this is also uh, somewhat comparative to harbor porpoises where we don't really know how long they live, but it's it's the, the max lifespan is, is around that 22, 25 year mark. But what's really interesting is so they have a, a relatively short lifespan compared to other dolphin species that live about 50 years or more. Um, and so when that happens, you usually have to start having babies earlier in life. So for example, harbor porpoises start having babies at around three years of age, three or four. Um, but these guys don't become sexually mature until six to nine years of age. Wow. Which is kind of late. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's potentially, that's like half your life at yeah. that point. Like you're, yeah. you're like, you're middle-aged. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this wow. will go into their ability to rebound, re rebound, mm -hmm. you know, is how quickly can they based on their, um, this life history. Right. Um, they mate in the summer. Gestation is about 10 to 12 months. They give birth in early November, mid-February. And remember, we're in the Southern Hemisphere now. So that's the This warm is time. Austral, Austral summer is right. what you're talking about here. <laughs> right, right. Um, the calving interval also is fairly long. It's two to four yeah. years. Yeah. And again, harbor porpoises, they can have, they can give birth every year. So, um, 
it's it's very interesting. The calves will stay with the mom for one to two years, with two being more common. And again, with rubber porpoises, it's only about a year. Um, so it's I've just found that super interesting that they have a, they start late, they have a relatively long calving interval, and in how long the calves are with the mom compared to how long they live. Mm -hmm. um, so that will be a problem with uh, these animals getting back to higher numbers. Mm -hmm. um, back to your you know, cute little like little round, you know, the fact that they're all round and just, you know, um, compared to other dolphins, the calves are tiny. And this is my favorite thing that I found so far. They equated them to rugby balls with flippers. Oh my gosh. Isn't that adorable? That's so cute. I was like, so now I'm just imagining a little rugby I want to see a baby's Hector's dolphin now. Right? That exactly. might need to go on the bucket list. Yeah. So uh, I might have to, I always say in my presentations that there's nothing cuter than a baby bottlenose dolphin because they have that cute little stubby nose, you know, the beak and everything. But now I, they may have to, I, rugby balls yep. with flippers, I think, I think beats that. I think it does. Yep. I think so. <laughs> um, males uh, have a very large testes. They're 2.9% of their body mass. Um, wow. so this indicates a sperm competition. So they're not fighting for the individuals. They're just mating with as many as possible. Very similar to harbor porpoises, right? That promiscuous mating system. Um, both sexes have multiple mates. They just mate, mate, mate until something catches. <laughs> um, and also similar to porpoises in the larger groups, they saw more sexual behavior. Uh, and as we've seen too, right? We usually see one or two mating attempts in a, in a small group, whereas uh, one of our uh, assistants saw 40 or more in a, in a large group of 100 uh, individuals or more. So with these guys, it is you're twice as likely to see mating behavior in groups of 11 to 15 um, versus 1 to 5 or 6 to 10. You are 20 times more likely to see it in groups of 16 to 20. Hmm. So I guess when they're getting together, that's what they're doing. Frisky. <laughs> that's the point. That's the point of those things. Um, so, uh, with that excitement, that's what I have for the Hector's dolphins behavior and diet. Um, and I just want to remind you again that babies look like rugby balls with flippers because it's, it's just a cute way to end this, this section. Right. So while we take a break, go yes. Google baby Hector's dolphins. Yes. And I'll, enjoy. We'll give you a few, a few, a little bit to do that. Go do it. And we'll be right back after a quick break. Hello listeners, this is Cindy, the Research Director at Pacific Mammal Research, and I wanted to take just a minute to thank you for listening and supporting our work. And I wanted to see maybe if you wanted to learn a little bit more about the background of what we do and what we see in the field and other kind of cool information that you can get by subscribing to the podcast for only $5 a month. You can get uh, ad-free episodes as well as these many episodes where we discuss the things we've seen in the field, the stuff we've gone to with workshops, uh, and other little interesting tidbits of information for our subscribers only. This is a great way to help support PacMam, who we are a very small nonprofit, so every every dollar helps us continue the work that we do and provide the information and the fun podcasts that we have uh, that hopefully you guys are are enjoying. So if you can think about it, subscribe to the podcast and help support our work, and we hope you enjoy. All right, we're back. And so Kat's going to tell us about the, um, this one is going to be, again, not super happy. <laughs> I mean, it rarely is. It rarely is. Be but honest. Yeah. 
Uh, we had a couple recently, or at least one recently that was like... Right, where it wasn't like terrible, but... Yeah, but anyway. Yeah, let me tell you how these guys are doing today. <laughs> um, so in terms of their status, they do hold the record for being both the smallest and the rarest marine dolphin in the world. So the overall population of Hector's dolphins, including both Hector's and Maui dolphins, is um, listed as endangered, according to the IUCN Red List. The Maui dolphin is extremely rare and is listed as critically endangered. And in terms of overall population, most of the more up-to-date sites were indicating there's around about 10,000 Hector's dolphins still remaining in the wild. The Maui dolphin subspecies is thought to only have about 55 individuals in their population. So it's pretty dire for them. I mean, they're really, really not doing well in terms of um, the overall population rate. They're kind of on, on the road to the, the, the vaquita, right? You know, Critically difficulty. endangered. Yeah. Um, so, and again, you know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, there are various different issues, not, you know, of course, once your population size gets small, you know, there's something else going on, but when the population size does get that small, you are then having issues with things like inbreeding and, and things like that, that can compromise immune function and compromise reproductive ability and all those other things that go into a healthy population. Um, so it's, it kind of begins to compound the problem. Exactly. So what is pushing these guys over the edge? Uh, number one is bycatch. So this is by far, by far the biggest threat to Hector's dolphins. So again, as we've talked about, they are a coastal species and they do encounter a high rate of recreational and commercial fisheries. And like Cindy alluded to, they are particularly susceptible to bycatch in set gill and trawl nets which are all setups used in coastal waters less than 100 meters deep. So basically this is being put in their ideal environment. And as Cindy mentioned, they are sometimes even actively choosing to engage around these boats because of the smaller fish or larvae that they are um, churning up. So basically I do have some stats on this, which is kind of mind blowing. So every year, as many as 150 dolphins die due to entanglement in these fisheries. 50? Every year. Jeez. And there has been a 74% overall decline of the Hector's dolphins and a 90% loss of Maui dolphins over just three generations. So basically yeah, since about the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. these guys have been decimated. That's it. That's the exact same story as the Vaquita. Yep. And so, I mean, it, literally one site that I found explicitly said Hector's dolphins are now facing extinction. Like yeah. we're, we're yeah, there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as we find with many species, you know, the difficulty here is that this is directly competing with livelihood of a lot of people um, around the coast. And very similar to parts of North America, parts of the UK and Europe, um, you know, around the coast of New Zealand, fishing is a major, major um, activity and priority and livelihood of, of individuals living there. So there have been some steps to um, begin to reduce these losses. Um, after the 2012 International Whaling Commission meeting, New Zealand did agree to ban gillnets in a particular portion of the Maui dolphin habitat. Um, there have been proposals of um, sea sanctuaries, marine sanctuaries in different parts of their range as well on the South Island, I know. Um, so there are steps being taken to try to reduce the impact overall of this type of entanglement and bycatch. But again, as we found with the vaquita, you know, it, it, we'll see how much of an impact that can make, you know, like Cindy said, in terms of recovery and being able to rebound because of their life history and reproductive style, um, 
these guys are going to take longer to recover. So that means that we have to be implementing all of these protective measures over a much longer time span. This is not a quick fix. Um, so it's it's challenging and it's definitely a very interdisciplinary process. Um, you know, I think as marine scientists, it can be very easy to look at this and say like, well, what are you doing? Stop it right now. We know what the problem is. Right. Um, it's not that simple. It never is, unfortunately. We're crossing multiple different sectors. There's a lot of different stakeholders involved. Um, and so it's it's a difficult situation. Um, but again, I think, you know, the Hector's dolphins have been getting a little bit more press yeah. recently, which is great. There, there have been more um, direct actions to make people aware of the dire situation that they are in. Um, so hopefully this podcast can be a little bit of that spreading the word, um, and just, you know, educating people about what is actually going on with this population. Cause it's really not good. Yeah. And I, in the new research, there's one specifically on the effectiveness of conservation. So we'll get into what they say about what, what needs to be done. Cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of other issues, because of course it's not just bycatch, there are multiple other things that these guys they're facing as well. Boat strikes is a big one. Again, living in that coastal range, they are in proximity to boats a lot, as we've said. Um, Pollution, coastal development, seabed mining. Again, all of these are major disturbance impacts, potentially even direct mortality with boat strikes. Um, All of those things, as we've talked about in multiple other podcasts, do impact life history, reproduction, ability to forage correctly, social behavior, all of the things. Um, so again, the more you're disturbing a population, the more, the more difficult it's going to be for them to just go about their life, um, as normal and forage as normal and do what they typically do. Yeah, Um, it's it's important to remember not just the direct deaths, right? The indirect mm -hmm. deaths of not being able to find your mate, to eat enough, to have a baby, like all of those things are Mm -hmm. almost invisible in, in, in the terms of, of seeing how it's affecting the animals, but it right. greatly affects their ability to continue. Yeah, and it can be hard to quantify, right? Like in terms of putting scientific numbers to something, it can be really difficult to quantify what effect these numbers have on direct mortality. Um, but we you know, we know uh, from multiple different studies that these do impact success yeah. of these animals in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, like Cindy said, one of the other potential disturbance things that these guys are experiencing and a lot more now is the the whale watch and the um, the swim with program. So again, um, there's pros and cons here, right? Where we are increasing and um, increasing awareness and providing a really unique op- opportunity for education um, of, of individuals about the species, about how to how to protect them, about how to advocate for their protection in, in your local area. Um, of course, anything that is directly interacting with the animals, like the swim with programs, does have the potential to be a disturbance to them um, and to interrupt potentially vital interactions between, say, mothers and calves or or just um, individuals within the social structures. So there's pros and cons to both things, um, especially being such, a, such an endangered population. It's a little bit more tricky because you do want to be providing those educational opportunities and, and showing people how important it is for them to remain in our environment, but also how much disturbance can they take because their thresholds are already pretty low for for how much additional disturbance they can take before it's really a problem for their populations. And that's why I mentioned that the 31 boats out of that one harbor, like mm-hmm. that's a lot of trips in one day. Like there's, there's basically no time where those animals are, are not out around 
around other boats that are watching what specifically watch them versus just right and it's one of the arguments that we've had a lot in our region as well for watching the southern resident killer whale population because it's the same thing they are a you know i mean less so now but back in the day they were the really the only killer whales to to watch around this area consistently and when you get upwards of 60 to 100 whale watch boats out there at the same time watching the same three pods every single day that's going to have an effect um so again it's the same thing for these guys right there's there's limited populations they're in geographically isolated locations um you're going to be impacting the same animals right because that's another thing especially when we get into yeah. whale watch is is there's the okay well are you in, how how many in individuals are you impacting per trip and per day and ideally what you want is a turnover of animals so you're not impacting the same animals consistently throughout the day when you're in a geographically isolated location and they have strong site fidelity, you're very, very likely to be impacting the same animals yep. throughout the day. Um, so it gets a little tricky. Yeah, and that's something that when you go, you know, you get a permit from NOAA to be able to go out and do this work or, or a permit from, I don't know what the permitting process looks like for whale watching boats, but particularly for research, you, you are supposed to note like how, what is the likelihood that you are going to harass the same animal in the same day? type thing right. so it's that that we re, re how often are you hitting you know getting to the same animal versus spreading it out basically it's right. important to understand right exactly um and then finally the other aspect here that i want to touch on briefly is predation so mm -hmm. they do um they you know they do especially being a small dolphin species they do have uh, a few natural predators in and around new zealand so the seven gill sharks are actually thought to be their main predator um, great white and blue sharks all have been uh, shown to predate on Hector's dolphins as well, which has been confirmed through dietary studies. Um, by living in the shallow coastal waters that they do, it, they are actually able to avoid predation from a lot of other species. Um, however, things like killer whales, mako sharks, and bronze sharks have also been suggested as predators, but have been unconfirmed. So we don't definitively know that these things are eating on Hector's dolphins, but it's possible their ranges overlap. It's possible that here and there they might take one. Um, but mostly predation for seven gill sharks, great white or blue sharks are the main um, predator threats to these guys. Well, and then that makes sense as to why they're they're hugging the coast, right? <laughs> like, I'm going to yeah. the shallows yeah. where it's not as scary. Right. Absolutely. And I would too, if I only grew to four to five feet in right. the ocean, like, yeah, no, I'm going to stay close to shore. Thank you very much. I'm going to have a, not, not the whole 3D effect. I'm just going to have this more shallow range that I can see around rather than like a yes. thousand feet of deep water. <laughs> yes. Um, so I do have a couple of fun facts that we'll save till the end. Yes. Um, so yeah, but let's get into what research is being done in current years on these guys. So um, I'm going to start off with the the um, the ones that are more linked linked to the threats, mainly because I also don't want to end on those. <laughs> um, but interestingly, I, it, I couldn't find there wasn't a lot of like super recent research. This is a lot of them are from 12, 2012, 2013, which is still recent, but mm. not. I was surprised that I couldn't find any more like ones that had just come out. But anyway. Um, so there was research on the effects of toxoplasma, uh, toxoplasmosis. So the toxoplasma Gandhi, mm -hmm. I believe it's a Gandhi eye. Uh, protist, I think, I believe, uh, parasite. <clears throat> um, and this is, uh, you know, likely have heard it with monk seals in Hawaii, the very, very, um, big problem there comes from cat poop. Uh, and so there has been more talk about this, uh, particular parasite with, um, with a variety of, of different marine mammals, um, 
some more than others, but I it was interesting that this one seems to be more of an issue for the Hector's dolphins. So um, previously mortality due to infectious diseases have not been well investigated for the species, but um, these guys found seven of 28. So 25% of ones that they saw died due to toxoplasmosis, including wow. two of the three Maui dolphins that they found mm -hmm. stranded, which is huge. You, know, you lose two Maui dolphins, that's a, a massive amount. Um, then a further 10 had evidence of the parasite in one or more tissues, but that wasn't the cause of death which doesn't mean it didn't, wouldn't end up being if they lived longer from whatever else the cause of death was, you know. Um, seven of the eight genotyped isolates were an atypical type two genotype. And I wasn't able to really get into why that's, um, if there's anything specifically important about that particular genotype, but it is interesting that it's an atypical one. So what's happening, right? Why is it mutating and sticking around in Hector's dolphins? Um, so they were just saying that this may be an issue, uh, an additional issue to the decline on top of everything else that Kat already mentioned, uh, and particularly for the Maui's dolphins, if, if this is hitting them hard. Um, so one thing that you can do if you're down there in New Zealand is to don't put your cat poop down the drain, put it in, um, and don't let cats outside um, that the water can flush the feces out into the, into the marine waters. Um, keeping them in your uh, local trash is the best way to get rid of cat poop. Anywhere, actually, <laughs> not just there. Yep. Um, the next one I have is linked to that is, uh, and so that was uh, Roe et al. at 2013. Um, then I have Lunison et al. at 2019. That's the impact of pile driving. So again, the close to shore um, uh, constructions. So during piling operations, the dolphin positive minutes per day. So basically how often they heard, these are passive acoustic devices. Um, how often they heard them decreased significantly at the detector that was closest to the piling, but increased at the mid harbor detector. So basically they left right next to the pile driving and went a little bit farther out away from it um, and hung out there. So the one that was close to the pile driving, the detections decreased with the increased sound exposure level. So basically the louder it got, the, the fewer dolphins were going to be around there. Um, the longer piling the event, the longer the piling event was, um, was associated with longer reductions in detections. So the longer the time the piling was, the pile driving was happening, the longer there were no dolphins there. Right. It, it, yeah. Because why would you up. want to get something that's super loud? Like, no, right. thanks. We're going to hang out. Until this quiets down, we're going to just peace out. Exactly. And on that, so the effects were long lasting. It took up to 83 hours for the, the detection levels to return to the pre-piling numbers. So wow. that's little guys. Four, day, four days, roughly, a little bit less, yeah. three or four days. Um, yeah, 72 would be three days. So um, yeah, but like three and a half days before they would return to the area, which is huge if that's where they need wow. to eat, you know? Right. What I was going to say for a species that's so, um, so linked to a specific location with having such strong site fidelity, that's a huge displacement. Yeah. Um, and then they're feeding around yeah, there all the wow. time. There's probably, there's not, they can't feed everywhere. Right. So mm -hmm. depending on where that location wow. is, could be very detrimental more than others. Mm -hmm. Um, so on food, uh, Miller et al. 2012 did some stomach content analysis from a long range. It was the first, actually the first quantitative assessment of prey composition. So they know what they ate, but they didn't see like how much of each they did. 
Um, and this is right, from 1984 okay. to 2006. So long time frame. Hmm. Um, the most common was that red cod, the pink cod, the uh, huru, uh, the arrow squid, the sprat, and the sole, and the stargazer with 77% of diet by max. So just the amount of body material <laughs> they found. Uh, and red cod specifically was 37% by mass. So that's really kind of their mm -hmm. the, the big prey species. Um, the Uhuru and uh, Hector's lanternfish were consumed in large numbers. So I think that's important to remember with these diet studies is that the there's a difference between how by you know percentage by mass versus just the strict numbers. If they're really small fish, you could have a whole lot of numbers of the you know, 200 animals that you ate, but that's not a lot of the mass because the animals are so small that you're eating. Right. Uh, yeah. So um, then most of them were between one to 60 centimeters in length, but most were less than 10. So again, they're eating a lot of smaller things, which makes sense because they're tiny themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so that indicates that for some species, the juveniles are being targeted rather than the adults, which is important to understand. Mm -hmm. Um, the east and west diets were significantly different. Javelin fish were more important to the west coast animals. Um, and um, more demersal prey or ones that are on the bottom were on the east coast animals. And so if we go back to what they were eating, the west coast only ate those four different species. Um, and so, um, and the javelin fish were important for those guys. So again, those differences will factor into how well they can survive these different threats that may be affecting what prey they get to eat. Mm -hmm. um, they do feed throughout the water column um, and the difference in diet popula between populations is thought to be reflective of prey availability. So it's just whatever's at those locations. I mean, and again, if they're not leaving those locations, they get whatever they get that's <laughs> That's kind of what they have to deal with. Um, then the um, next one is on the effectiveness of the conservation measures. This is Sluton et al. 2010. And um, uh, Sluton is, is kind of the big researcher with these, with these animals. Um, a lot of the papers that you'll see um, have her name on them. Um, so these, they used estimates from an observer program on commercial gill netting. Um, and there were no quantitative estimates of bycatch by amateur gill netters or trawl fisheries. So they could only look at commercial gill nets. Um, for their data, but they um, used that that information from the uh, the estimates of how often they get bycaught in those in commercial gillnets, and they put it into what's called a simple population viability analysis or PBA, um, and they predicted what would happen under three different scenarios um, of how much would be bycaught and what their population would look like. So they did the status quo; nothing changes. They did um, the new regulations that were put in 2008 by the Minister of Fisheries, and then a third one where total protection happened. And so what the current population is right now is 27% of the population from 1970. Mm -hmm. so yeah, so in, a decrease of 70%. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's a lot <laughs> in a short amount of time. Um, and so when they looked at the projections, pop the, the project, projections under the status quo or even the new regulations by the Ministry of Fisheries um, showed a continued decline. For the, um, the one with the new regulations in place, that was driven by bycatch due to much weaker protection measures on the South Island West Coast. Um, and that's also where they have less diverse prey again. So linking back to that one more time. 
Um, so they have weaker protections in areas where they have less opportunity for other things to eat as well. And so even if even with the protections in 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 place, those new regulations, they it's not going to help enough. Um, for the last mm -hmm. one where it was total protection, all populations are projected to increase. Um, the population would double by 2050 and reach half of its 1970 population in under 40 years. So again, back to that, how long is it going to take to get them back to where they're at? Longer than we would want because of the, how their life history is, their reproduction that we talked about. Um, and that's with yeah. all protections, nobody getting by caught, like no extra mortalities due to human interference, which is unlikely to happen. Mm-hmm. So not super happy uh, there, um, but that isn't to say that, you know, the protections are still protecting them. It's slowing down the decline. If we can do other things that can help increase, like there's, there's things to do, um, but it's just, it just makes it, it's just difficult with um, how their population works. Mm -hmm. um, the next one is Hammer et al. 2013. And this was long range movements of hectares um, that may help Maui's dolphins, which was very cool. Um, so between mm -hmm. 10, 2010 to 2012, they had 44 individuals that were sampled in the Maui distribution, <clears throat> where the Maui dolphins are, um, four of which, four of these animals were genetically identified as Hector's dolphins. So again, hard to tell in the wild. Mm -hmm. um, they had two live females, one dead female and one dead male. Um, so that indicates that some Hector's dolphins are swimming all the way up to meet with the Maui dolphins, which is interesting um they had two hectares dolphins one dead female neonate and one living male that were sampled along the north island's southwest coast which is outside of either subspecies ranges. oh interesting mm -hmm. so it's possible there's an, a population there that nobody really knows about um and who knows if it's newer you know maybe someone just went up there and was like hey this is a cool place i'm gonna stay <laughs> Um, they did show that there's, so there was a long distance dispersal by Hector's dolphins, more than 400 kilometers. So again, larger than what they, the, you know, the long range that we talked about earlier. Um, and so that there is a possible unsampled Hector's population along that Southwest coast of the North Island. Um, two mm -hmm. living Hector's dolphins were sampled when in association with Maui's dolphins. So they're hanging out together, which is interesting. Hmm. That's curious. But yeah, there is currently no evidence of interbreeding. Right, but they have crossover potentially with location, which is right. curious. So, I mean, maybe it hasn't happened yet, or we can't, we, we didn't sample an individual that showed us that it did. But if they're mm -hmm. if they're hanging out together, I mean, and they're they're subspecies, they're, there's certainly no reason why they can't interbreed. Yeah. So maybe that's you know this could be a good thing, right? If they get up there and they hang out long enough, they're they're going to start interbreeding. I I don't, I don't see that how that would not happen if they are mixing, um, and that could be very helpful for the Maui dolphin. Mm -hmm. Um, and so again, it's a reminder that those were only found because of genetics, because the two subspecies look almost identical. And so that's the, another part of the power of genetics is, is getting into that information, knowing who's who. Mm -hmm. um, and the last thing I have was cool, um, again, going back to photo ID, because that's one of my favorite things, is Webster et al. 2010. They used laser photogrammetry for measuring Hector's dolphins. So they basically set up their camera um, with these two little like uh, um, lasers um, that that it's funny in in the paper they're like they're safe but but not don't look directly into them 
that that could cause damage. <laughs> but like, oh, you don't have to it. worry about like being lasered. <laughs> That's funny. But don't stare at the lasers. Um, so they have these two pair of lasers that were set up for a certain, I think it was 10 centimeters um, apart uh, and onto the, the, the tripod for the camera that they used. Um, and then they basically took pictures and had the laser beams hitting the dorsal fins when they took the ID shots. And so it allowed them to measure dorsal fin dimensions. So the laser dots were projected onto the fin, providing the scale and thus allowing them to measure the different aspects of the dorsal fin. And, and also photo ID 34 individuals based on fin nicks and other marks. So a, a kind of two things happening at once there. And so they used measurement and age data that were collated from 233 necropsied Hector's dolphins. So they could base like, okay, what are the, what is the relationship between these dorsal fin height and length and whatever's and the total length of the animal. And that correlates to what the age of the animal is. Um, and they found that fin length was a better predictor of of total length than fin height. So the, the I guess more like, oh, well, I guess the length was up there, but um, that particular measurement they were, could allow them to then extrapolate what the length of the individual is likely to be and thus what age category it might be in or at least get closer to it. Mm -hmm. um, so you can use that, that fin data to estimate total length and thus the age of the animal, which can be very important in understanding like how many adults are out there, how many juveniles, you know, um, in understanding how well the population is doing and are there enough reproductive individuals left to be able to, to help. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I like ending on that one because it was, it is a, this is some cool new, uh, well, this is 2010, so not super new, but, um, relatively new, but using those technologies in different ways to be able to find out this data that we normally wouldn't otherwise be readily, easily able to get that can really help with, um, direct conservation by, providing the information of understanding the population, which you need before you can do any good conservation measures, which goes back yeah. to that long-term monitoring that we like to harp on here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, well, let's end with some fun facts. Yes. Um, okay. So as you guys know, if you are regular listeners, I like to do the name stuff because mm -hmm. it's really fun to learn about the etymology of some of these. So for the Hector's dolphins, you might be wondering why the heck are they called Hector's dolphins? So Is let me tell you, uh, yes, shockingly, okay. um, just once I would like one of these to be named after a woman who discovered them, mm -hmm. but I don't know if we're ever going to get there in movies yeah. that we're talking through. I was just realizing that when I was doing the research, I'm like, you know, anyway, yeah. um, I digress. Cause they were all so, done many, many years ago when yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> so the Hector's dolphin was named after Sir James Hector, mm -hmm. who was around from 1834 to 1907. I and he was the, the, the lantern fish too. The Hector's lanternfish? Probably. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. He yeah. was the curator of the Colonial Museum in Wellington, Ooh. and he examined the first specimen of the dolphin that was found. Um, um, species was then scientifically described by a Belgian zoologist, Pierre-Joseph van Beneden, in mm. 1881. Um, so the the species name is uh, Cephalorhynchus hectori. Yes. And the etymology of the subspecies, the Maui dolphin, which is Cephalorhynchus hectori Maui, is based on a Maori legend about a man who was, while fishing, pulled up the North Island, um, which is known as Teika a Maui. Mm -hmm. So, because they are found around the North Island, Makes sense. Maui's dolphin. Oh, yeah. So cool. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. 
Um, and then like Cindy alluded to at the beginning of our conversation today, um, they have lots of other uh, nicknames that they are known as or other kind of common names. Um, so some of the fun ones were Mickey Mouse Dolphins because <laughs> of the dorsal fin. Right. Hobbit Dolphins because Ooh, of Hobbit. their size. Oh, yeah, be- because of their size. And I'm like, well, also because they're native to New Zealand because right? Hobbit, duh. Hobbits, yeah. Um, and other names include white-headed dolphin, New Zealand white front dolphin, little pied dolphin. I like the little um, pied dolphin. So super cute name. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's really cute because they're, they're mostly like black, gray, and white. Um, but yeah, Hobbit dolphin was my favorite personally because they're just, they're that just small. They're just that like little dolphins. Favorite. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just so, in case there we go. I'm gonna I'm gonna end on Hobbit dolphins. Hobbit dolphin. <laughs> and just in case anybody doesn't know, the reason why New Zealand and hobbits go together is because they film Lord of the Rings in. And, and the Hobbit, and, and they have, and the Hobbit, and they have they have Hobbits. Don't they? They have the whole yes. like village you can go visit. Yes. So the whole the whole yeah the whole of that world was filmed in New Zealand. So yeah, uh, I thought that was pretty cute. So it's a so uh, it's a Hobbit dolphin that have babies that are rugby balls with slippers. I mean, how could you not love them? I know they're just the best ever. I'm just saying. <laughs> So with that, we will leave you with the, the Hobbit, Hobbit dolphin that has babies that look like rugby balls with slippers. Um, and <laughs> we'll be with you next episode will be a general review. And this will be the first one that was um, suggested to us by uh, one of our long-term listeners. Um, so get ready for that in a couple weeks. Uh, it'll be, yes, thank you very much for that. We love getting um, ideas and what you guys want to hear. So we'll do that next time and be sure to um, remember Christmas is coming up. Um, We'll also be having our annual fundraiser. Um, So if you enjoy the content that we are giving you and um, please look on Facebook, we'll have a Facebook fundraiser as well as um, another outside page. Uh, But we would really appreciate your support to help us continue to do the work that we're doing and the information we're sharing with you. Um, You can also go to our gift store and find all the cool merch. Uh, Again, there are some newer colors up Uh, for some of the shirts that you can order. Um, So take a look there and all the proceeds um, go back to um, uh, the the work that we're doing and the research that we're conducting and the information that we're sharing. So thank you all for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. This was brought to you by Pacific Mammal Research, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. To learn more about the species we discuss, check out our blog. Head to our website, www.pacmam.org, that's P-A-C-M-A-M.org, to check it out. Also, help us continue providing fun and educational content like this by donating today. Your help is how we can continue to do our work and share it with you. Thanks.